potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show. Today, bringing you another fascinating guest, helping to create a better tomorrow on some really unique fronts. Uh, today, we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Greg Lieberman, who is a neuroscientist uh, and also lead of optimizing human system performance at the United States Army DEVCON. Army Research Laboratories. Uh, DEFCOM uh, is a uh, integral part of the Army Futures Command in the United States. It's the Army's uh, foundational research laboratory. They're focused on operationalizing science to ultimately ensure overmatch in, in future conflicts. Uh, and they help shape future concepts with scientific research, knowledge, ultimately uh, to deliver technology uh, for modernization solutions. Um, with his PhD uh, from University of Vermont in neuroscience, a postdoc fellow uh, in cognitive neuroscience from University of New Mexico, uh, and also his uh, undergraduate in psychology, University of Massachusetts Amherst, Dr. Lieberman's research uh, and research leadership experience ranges uh, from genetics to learning theory, animal behavior to artificial intelligence uh, and human variability to team dynamics with additional expertise in science and technology strategy and the opportunities afforded by the unique uh, areas of future of work. Uh, specific areas of Dr. Lieberman's technical expertise and this doesn't include everything, but uh, involves maximizing human potential, uh, human autonomy teaming, uh, neuroanatomical organization and connectivity, brain structure function coupling, learning-driven neuroplasticity, uh, non-invasive neurostimulation and cognitive enhancement, neuroimaging, mind-body medicine and mindfulness meditation, and the mechanisms of uh, studying neurodegenerative disease, neuropathology, and brain injury. Really has a lot of interesting things going on. Uh, we're honored to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Greg Lieberman, uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ira. It is a genuine honor and a pleasure to be here. And uh, my biggest fear is that the time's just going to blow by and, and looking forward to talking. Hey, that, that, that's, a, that's a sign of a great show. So <laughs> let, let's go into it. Uh, Greg, what, what I'd like to start off with, um, as we typically do, is just uh, a couple minutes where, where I hand you the floor to just talk about the beginning. You know, uh, uh, who is Dr. Greg Lieberman? You know, where did you grow up? Uh, what got you interested uh, in, in, in science or STEM initially and, and, and this really fascinating path into, into the neurosciences? Tell yeah, about sure. So you said to start from the beginning. So I'm originally from upstate New York, uh, moved to Massachusetts pretty young, just in time to start school. And uh, New England and Massachusetts is where I've spent most of my time. So as you said, uh, I went to University of Massachusetts as an undergrad for psychology. Although interestingly, I actually started in theater. Um, and by the way, side note, I'd recommend any scientist take a theater course um, because I am a massive introvert but theater does some wonderful things for teaching extroverted behavior. Um, and with not without it, I'm not sure I'd be here talking to you here and now today. Um, so, but if you think about it, there's really a tight connect between theater and neuroscience and psychology, right? It's all about people. Um, and I'll tell you, the moment I knew I was interested in psychology was one that I bet all of your listeners can relate to. There was, there was one day getting ready for an exam, rushing through the building, balancing the books and the bags and, this really cute woman who I had had a crush on smiled at me in the hallway. And um, come on, you know that feeling, we all know yeah. that feeling. But as I found myself taking that exam, um, I found that I was focusing and, and that excitement kind of carried through. And um, it blew my mind that something as trivial as a smile from a, a potential crush in a hallway 
could have all these behavioral and performance and longer lasting and even generalizable emotional uh, implications. And it blew my mind. And um, I got to thinking about it. And, you know, I don't think it's a stretch for everyone out there to imagine that the opposite interaction can have the opposite effect, something disappointing happening. And it, it scales so far beyond just the implications of the, um, the scenario in which it occurred. And, uh, you know, this kind of got me connecting the theater and the psychology. Um, theater is all about understanding emotions enough and the circumstances that others experience and the emotions that go with it and the behaviors that go with it um, and the empathy that necessary to understand it. And psychology is pretty much the same thing, but instead of focusing on fiction, you're focusing on your fellow people. Um, and this was a big connection for me, um, especially because I'm also a lifelong mindfulness practitioner. I actually have a little picture of myself kneeling next to a Buddha in my dad's house when I was probably no more than six years old. And so for me, those three points, um, understanding myself and self-awareness and how I react and feel under certain circumstances, extending out to understanding how other people feel and perform and behave and why, and then tied together with that little bow of theater has just locked me in. You know, people are what I'm passionate about. Um, and I think my technical career kind of flows through that progression. So um, college again, psychology and theater. Uh, after college, I took about four years off. I worked at the Mass General Institute for Neurodegenerative Disease. Uh, we studied mouse models and drug therapies and the mechanisms underlying this horrible degenerative condition. Uh, and even how um, relationships exist between some of the, the what we call neural sequelae or, or the underlying mechanisms between Huntington's disease and other diseases, right? We had groups in this building who were trying to cure Parkinson's and trying to cure Huntington's. Just such a phenomenal experience that taught me that not only just thinking about people and observing people um, are good ways to understand science, uh, psychology and neuroscience, but that there are real good ways to study this for a living. And it was about that point when I started stepping back from hopes of becoming a clinical psychologist and instead focusing on research. Um, so I ended up, as you said, I went up to University of Vermont, uh, pursued a doctorate in cognitive neuroscience. Actually, the first project I was on involved um, studying learning of fear and anxiety behaviors in rats, um, developed a horrible, horrible allergy to those rats. And so one thing led to another and I found myself in a human neuroscience lab. And um, it was a mind-blowing experience. Uh, in this lab, what we cared about was neuroplasticity. And what that means is the brain's ability to change, not just when we're, we're really young and developing, but as a response of learning. Um, you've probably heard you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and I'm here to tell you that's not true. Uh, there's so many great studies out there, even in such simple to understand things as juggling. One of my favorite papers, and I apologize, I can't recall the author, but it was um, in a top journal. They basically taught a bunch of people to juggle and they measured their brains before and after. And then a few weeks down the road after they stopped juggling. And you can actually measure the changes in the brain between motor circuits and coordination circuits getting stronger um, neuroplastically as a result of this training. And there are labs out there doing this work now in anything you could imagine, in recovery from pathology and disease to improving capabilities in healthy subjects. Um, and that's kind of where my path took me. Uh, the grad lab used a model of chronic pain and, and comorbid conditions like depression. Um, but I went on from there to a postdoc in, in New Mexico where we studied the same types of things, the brain's ability to adapt and to change and to recover. But instead of measuring it in, in people suffering from horrible conditions, we measured it in high-functioning, intelligent adults. Mm -hmm. uh, it was work that was probably unsurprisingly funded by the government and the intelligence community in particular. Um, this is my first taste of government work. If you told me a decade ago I'd be working for the government, let alone the army, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Uh, but here I am. Uh, and that was my first exposure to it. And so uh, we used mindfulness and meditation, a topic, again, which I say is, as I said, is near and dear to my own heart personally, as well as brain training games, a couple of cool control conditions, and then transcranial direct current stimulation or, neuro, or neuromodulation, where basically you put a low level of electricity into the brain um, in a couple of different areas where you're hoping to tap into the dynamics of neural circuits and hoping to amplify the effects of training or learning or teaching. Mm -hmm. 
Um, found some cool stuff, you know, nothing that, that broke news. Um, most of our effects were negative, but we found a couple of neat things and there's a couple of papers out there. And um, this is where I, I got into uh, human improvement, human enhancement. Um, from there, I came to a second postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, I, I didn't know it when I applied, but the Army Research Laboratory. Uh, I worked jointly with um, bioengineering department at Penn and the ARL mm -hmm. scientists, and they were interested in also improving human capabilities and human cognition and human performance. Um, so we ran a couple of cool studies in collaboration with Columbia University, where we looked at professional baseball players. Um, did a couple of studies on resilience to sleep, uh, I'm sorry, um, resilience to sleep loss or sleep deprivation, um, some great work on individual differences in brain computer interfaces, uh, and happy to answer questions on any of these if you have them. Um, and then ultimately, I started working on human autonomy teaming and made my way into uh, human system performance. Um, from there, I stepped back from the bench just a little bit. I served as a technical assistant or an executive fellow to the director of ARL for about a year. And then I moved up to our parent organization, uh, US Army Combat Capabilities Development Command or DEVCOM, where I was on a strategy team dedicated to figuring out what the future of work looks like for a large S&T organization like ours. Um, and we dove deep, a uh, team of six or seven people, full-time effort, dedicated six months, thinking about nothing except what it means to enable your workforce to work where, when, and how they're most effective. Um, and this has been a passion of mine since. Uh, I extended up with the, the parent command for uh, the better part of this year in, in little bits and pieces here and there at the very least, um, helping them to stand up a, a product project team to continue mm -hmm. figuring out what future work does for an organization like us and how we can leverage it to the best of our ability. Um, we've got a really, really brilliant workforce and one thing the pandemic taught us is that all along, we probably haven't been doing everything the best ways that we can. You know, we all rushed home in a hurry. Uh, we adopted and adapted to new tools and new technologies um, at a rush because we had to. And um, I think to the surprise of a lot of people out there in the world, um, organizations like ours and companies uh, still managed to produce. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they managed to produce better, yeah. right? I mean, you can, you can ask yourself to what extent that's true and in what contexts, because certainly there are implications of different biases. You know, if you ask somebody, are you productive working from home? They're more likely to say yes, because they've been working home for a year and who wants to admit they're not being productive, um, which is why I think one thing you'll see out in the ecosystem is that top companies and top organizations are either collecting data and measuring metrics and figuring out what's really happening or they're paying someone else to do it for them. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, what we found out is that there are some things we do, we do better when we're not mm -hmm. in the office, right? And, um, you know, folks look at me occasionally today and say, maybe it's time to stop calling it the future of work and start calling it the now of work. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to push back on that because I really think that we're still in a transition. We're still in a pilot, right? We know we know how things work the old way. We know how things work through two to three years of the pandemic. And we're just now finally starting to come out from underneath these restrictions and figure out what the future may look like. Because we're not there yet when people are still going into the office for very specific tasks and finding themselves on empty floors with no one there around them. Um, and so I think we've kind of figured out the classic way. We've kind of figured out the, the maximum telework way. But we're right now really just beginning to figure out what hybrid truly means. And uh, I don't think we're truly going to hit the future of work until we've hit that equilibrium where all of our people are truly working where they're most productive, where they're most effective, where they're most happy. Um, so I'll, I'll wrap there and dive into some questions. Uh, certainly happy to talk more about any of the things I just said. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a... It was an amazing intro, uh, Greg. A, a lot to unpack there, but you know, as as I'm, um, you you walked us through the journey, and, and it's sort of um, in anticipation of this show, I was sort of taking that same journey through your uh, sort of your your PubMed 
um, you know, history and, and looking at each of these where, you know, you start off, as you were saying, you're working on a small molecule uh, therapeutics for, for Huntington's disease uh, at, um, at, at MassGen. And then you get to University of Vermont and you're dealing with the, uh, the, the interactive voice response technologies, the cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, you're moving away from sort of the, the pharmacotherapeutic um, and dealing once again with not with the rats, initially rats, but then the humans. And then you get into the transcranial stuff. And and I, I sort of, you know, I come out of the pharma industry. So most of my career was um, was spent in the small molecule space. Okay, here's a drug that interferes or does something. But in the pharma industry, even there, we've seen this transition to, you know, what I'll broadly refer to uh, as the zap. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, uh, if we potentially, whether they call it electroceuticals or, or something else, sort of getting the drug out of the equation and looking at some of these other really uh, complex, these bleeding edge, non-invasive mo uh, modalities to, to affect. Uh, talk a little bit about that transition as you've been going through this own transition from sort of drug to behavioral to now some of these really bleeding edge uh, things that you're working on at DEFCOM. Talk a little bit about how sort of uh, you adapted along the way with uh, sort of the uh, use of these different tools. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I've talked mostly about work that's not going on in DEVCOM. A lot of what sure. you're referring to was before my time in government. Yep. Um, but there was a lot of logical progression there for me. Um, okay. First, looking at a disease that's as intractable as Huntington's, where, um, you know, the prognosis is, is terrible without some sort of intervention. And to this day, there's, there's no cure. And um, you know, I don't follow the literature as closely as I'd like to, but I haven't heard about a miracle treatment yet either. Um, and it's sort of, you know, a, a lot of the treatments that are out there are risky and dangerous, and it's tough to know if they're going to work. And that was really the appeal to me of cognitive behavioral therapy in grad school. You know, it sort of leverages this approach of, well, can we first and foremost fix the cause of something? And if we can't fix the cause of something, can we change the thinking that's tied to it? And if you can't change the thinking that's tied to it, can you decrease the emotional impact of it? And this to me was such a powerful approach. Um, as a longtime mindfulness practitioner, as a, a neuroscientist studying plasticity, um, I wasn't hard to convince that mind over a matter is probably a real thing, right? The, uh, the lab and the clinic that I worked in, as you mentioned, was the mind-body medicine clinic. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise is that you can tap into your mind to influence your body. Uh, whether it's something as simple as the placebo effect, which I think everybody's probably familiar with, can give somebody a sugar pill with nothing in it whatsoever and say, that's going to fix your headache. Yeah. And for some sub subset of people, it'll fix their headache. Uh, we don't know why. It's certainly not a robust mechanism. But when you go deeper than just giving somebody a placebo pill, uh, for example, Army Research Laboratory, we do currently have a MURI, uh, which is a multidisciplinary university research initiative that's targeting um, mind-body medicine type effects for health and wellness, mm -hmm. leveraging mindfulness, but also hypnotherapy, right? Um, hypnotherapy and mindfulness to me are sort of two sides of the same coin. One is when you practice and induce it on your own. The other is when you're guided by an expert, but either way, they let you tap into that mind uh, component of things, right? And um, I don't know that we fully understand it, but there's something to it. And I think, you know, various cultures, even various religions have known this for hundreds and thousands of years. And we're just sort of starting to tap into what goes on in the brain uh, when you're studying and taking advantage of mind-body medicine. Um, and from there, you know, it was a, a logical step using uh, mindfulness to treat pain patients and mm -hmm. depression and what have you to start asking, well, what could this do for the rest of us? You know, I, I've got this little theory that humans have out-communicated our evolutionary ability to communicate. You think back, <laughs> you know, even just a couple hundred years ago, and we were largely living in, in villages close by your family, and maybe you know this many people, and then as um, urbanization and industrialization have progressed, suddenly we know this many people, and with the advent of the information age and the internet, suddenly we know this many people, and it's a lot to keep up with. And, um, you know, mindfulness historically was something that was practiced by monks, by, by some of the top tier socioeconomic individuals within cultures. And it was really for, you know, I hate to use the word elite, but it was, it was practiced by the elite. Uh, and today, 
there are companies all over the world who are paying fortunes to bring in mindfulness trainers yep. and meditation trainers. Um, and so I, what's really going on there? Um, and so I went on and I did a postdoc and we looked into what was going on there, uh, found some really cool stuff, um, both in trained meditators and novices. Um, even people, you know, I'll tell you myself, I put the headset on a couple of times when we were setting up the experiment. And what I found for me is that the neurostimulation, which again, you've picked sort of two or more spots on the brain where we know very specific circuits are located and you put positive energy on one side, negative energy on the other. And we're not entirely sure what's going on, but it, it results in electricity flowing along these circuits. And I can tell you in my case, it didn't have some magic light switch where suddenly I felt mindful when I hadn't before. But when I began to practice, what I found is that I was able to kind of get into a state of equanimity a little bit quicker, a little less resistance, um, a little easier to stick with it or come back to it if I got distracted. Um, it, it was incredible. It was incredible. And in fact, the lab I worked in is still doing that work today using um, the neurostimulation and even, I believe, the mindfulness um, helping people cope with alcohol addiction mm -hmm. and, and with other challenges. Um, so we know that the brain is really nothing but proteins and fats that shoots little electrical signals and chemicals back and forth and results in this incredible construct that we call consciousness. And what we're finding is that you can tap into that. A little bit of electricity in the right place, a little bit of magnetism in the right place, uh, even some great work using ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of sound in the right place and there are reports out there ranging from improved memory. There was a story in the news just this week about, um, I, I haven't dug deep on it, so I'm not uh, vouching for it, but literally just this week, a story about uh, electrical stimulation helping working memory in older mm -hmm. adults. Um, it's just, it's, it's such interesting stuff. And, you know, if there's any justification I can think of for wanting to live forever, it's to know all these answers at some date <laughs> in the future. Um, yeah, and so I, I think you could probably imagine why the intelligence community, the army are, are interested in making people better. But at the end of the day, people are people and soldiers are people. And, you know, whatever we can use to help our soldiers uh, may translate, may generalize and help the general population as well. It's, you know, I was, um, you know, the list here of, and looking at a couple of these papers, one, um, and for the audience, mindfulness-based training with transcranial direct current stimulation, modulating neuronal resource allocation and working memory, and the yeah, other's randomized pilot study, and then you have another where you combine um, modulating effective experience and emotional intelligence with loving kindness meditation and transcranial direct stimulation. And these are both fascinating studies that I, I, I encourage people listening to, uh, to check out on PubMed. Um, as you're doing this work, sort of combining, as you were saying, you know, sort of ancient, these ancient tools, right, on one hand with uh, TDCS <laughs> and some of this bleeding edge stuff on the other. Um, any, obviously, if you can talk about it, great, if not, that's fine, but um, any interesting things, um, obviously, you're, 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 you're doing the meditation, you're stimulating the mind, any interesting things that are popping up with the way, you know, those hundred billion neurons or parts of the brain are responding? Anything hop off the the screen there in terms of the uh, unique profiles of the brain that are like, wow, you know, I didn't think XYZ area ever gets, you know, we see activity there or, or not in other areas. Any any interesting little tidbits there that, that uh, might pop into your mind? Mm. You know, that's a really, really, really good question, Ira. And I'm embarrassed to admit, I'm actually going to have to punt it. It's been about Oh, probably about five years since I've lived in that world and done that work. I will tell you, there's some phenomenal work going on. Um, you know, I see things on Facebook and hear things through other social networks and professional networks. And so I think the answer is probably a definitive yes, that there is some great stuff going on there. But unfortunately, I'm not the one to ask. Um, I'd be happy to follow up with you after the podcast. I could certainly point you to a couple people who could answer that question brilliantly. It's it's, it's fine. I just I, I throw it I throw it out there because as I said those two papers are just yeah. <laughs> so cool in general. But um, no, no, that's fine. Yeah, I, um, what I can tell you though is that the science itself has gone farther since I used to do it when I okay. when I was performing this research. Uh, we tended to think in terms of brain areas and sure. um, just where a circuit connects. And if I can put juice in on this side or take it out on this side, then that should 
dampen or amplify that circuit. Um, but there's been some great work using EEG and other uh, brain sensing technologies where we now know about, we now know more about the dynamics of networks mm-hmm. um, and not just, you know, what's the connection do from point A to point B, but much larger scale oscillations of activity yeah. across big areas of the brain. Um, and there are folks across the country, across the world, and uh, even in a couple of little pockets with an army who are looking at that, where instead mm-hmm. of just sort of trying to feed energy into one little node, what happens when you take a real complex systems graph theoretical approach and try to have a, a, a larger impact across a larger network and um, all of its dynamic interactions with other parts of the brain um, sort of from a larger level. And again, I don't, I don't track the research there at a very deep level. My career has gone a different direction, but I'll tell you, it is fascinating stuff. Uh, and then worth doing some Googling on if, if this is new to any of the listeners out there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. Um, along those lines, and once again, this is, this is another from sort of that, that era, but if you, uh, there was this, this one other paper that popped up and I know sleep has been such a hot topic as well in recent years. And we've done a couple episodes on sort of, uh, uh, chronobiology and, you know, these, these concepts of, you know, if I take a drug, uh, at the middle of the night versus in the morning, sort of the pharmacokinetics change and all that. Say a couple words about, if you could, just about the paper you did on the, uh, the longitudinal study of naturalistic sleep in healthy adults any interesting yeah. insights there yeah so this is a study i'm really proud of you know science being what science is we didn't change the world with the results on this one either but it was um it was an awesome study because there's so much great literature out there in the world about what happens when you totally deprive yourself of sleep or like you said when you take this drug in the morning versus at night and what the implications for sleep are but the reality is, is most of us day in and day out are, are not sleep deprived to the point where we're staying up all night in the lab, right? Where maybe we're sleeping a little less well when we'd hope, or we're waking up a couple of times in the, the middle that's, of the night. I know amazing. I do as I get older <laughs> yet, right? Right. Um, and, and there really haven't been very many, uh, I'd like to say none, but I don't know if that's true anymore. Um, but there really haven't been very many large longitudinal naturalistic sleep studies. Um, and what this one set out to do is we sent everybody home with wrist act graphs. So, um, I think we used a proprietary one, not a, not a Fitbit, but that let us see when people really do sleep um, and how much and then what the implications of that were. So the study we ran here, again, this is out of Army, it was called CRASH, or Cognitive Resilience and Sleep History. And we looked at a whole bunch of folks who had varying degrees of sleep patterns, from shift workers to new mothers to just everyday folks and what their natural variability in sleep was. And then you're not just taking into account two to three days in a lab when you go in to be in a study, but instead months of normal patterns uh, and normal day-to-day type interactions. And we were curious about how that impacted your resilience to the lack of sleep and to your performance. Um, unfortunately, it turns out that it's tough to get that kind of data. Uh, even among new mothers and even among shift workers and college students, the amount of variability in sleep that we were able to measure um, didn't turn out to be enough to replicate what you'd expect to find in sleep deprivation. Um, But we absolutely found lots and lots of individual differences in how resilient people were and how much it affected your performance. Um, Looked at all sorts of factors from when you go to sleep compared to when you normally go to sleep, when you wake up compared to when you normally wake up, uh, how well you slept throughout the night and how long, and compared it to all sorts of different measures. Um, I think there's one paper out there that I didn't contribute to that took it a little bit further where we even tied in um, pupilometry and looking at how um, measuring your pupils as a metric for attention uh, and focus and other cognitive constructs, how that related to sleep history. And I can't quote the results, but uh, the papers should be searchable. Um, But sleep is really when we restore, right? Mm -hmm. It's when we consolidate our memories. It's when we clear the the trash and the detritus from our brains. Um, It's super critical. And I don't think anybody out there doubts it. Uh, So if anyone listening to this isn't sleeping enough, sleep more. It's good for you. Yeah. Your lips to God's ears. Yeah. <laughs> Especially these damn kids in the house. But anyway, <laughs> um, great, great. Moving on to uh, you know a couple of areas that you that you're actively involved in now and really passionate about. Um, I, you know, I'd like to go to the topic that you brought up in, in the intro of future to work, mm. uh, and you know you're very 
focused, interested on how we develop, how we leverage uh, these tools, but also um, how they impact not just the way we will work, uh, but how our, our relationships will evolve in the future. And, and you know, I think a future of work, it, it, it can be, as you know, a, a broad range of things, everything from what we're doing now, uh, which, you know, communicating over Zoom to some of the things that we've talked on the show that you, you're actively involved in in terms of the uh, the human autonomy teaming, the pairing. Um, you know, we've had folks like, uh, I did an episode with uh, Alamandi uh, a couple mm -hmm. of years ago from DARPA working on the non-invasive brain computer interfaces. But once again, you know, it, you know, he was talking a little bit about, hey, you know, can we can we hook up more than those one neurons, but multiple neurons and and how that uh, uh, ultimately leads to sort of these advanced forms of a brain computer interfaces that allow us to, as you, you know more about that, to do all sorts of neat things. What does future work really mean to you? And then from a, a DevCom perspective, you know, what is sort of the breadth of, of what we're talking about here from the sort of the basic to uh, the most bleeding edge stuff that you're allowed to talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, first, really quick, I didn't know you had Al on your show. I'm going to have to go back and find that one. Uh, it was actually a previous show. I, I had oh, the okay. honor of hanging out with him. Okay. Yeah, yeah no, I, I've had that honor as well. He just uh, retired or left yep. DARP uh, not that long ago, yep. if I recall. NTT now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but future of work is... I don't know, to me, it's kind of where the science and the technical background that I've got coincides and bumps right up against the, the budding leadership philosophy that I'm, I'm developing as a student of leadership as well. And to me, what it all boils down to is empowering people, streamlining processes and innovating tools. And uh, as I alluded to in the intro, the pandemic taught us there were things that we have not been doing to the best of our ability. Um, you know, we learned this is how you work. You go in at this hour, you come home at that hour, you engage with your friends and your colleagues while you're there, you come home, you do the rest of your life. But those lines have blurred significantly in the last couple of years, right? Where so many of us are, are working from home and changing the way we do things. And um, again, to our surprise, some of those things are better. And in order to really be our best, right? I think we need to take the lessons we've learned from this and continue them and not let the momentum flag. Because there are things we're doing today that I think most of us would agree we've probably always needed, but that have been infeasible. Things like what you and I are doing right now, right? Before the, the Zoom spike a couple of years back and then Microsoft Teams and all this other stuff. I mean, there's there's been video calls for a while. We've had sure. Skype, but they were you know, maybe with grandpa or the niece and the nephew on a weekend, um, it wasn't what it's become. And what we're finding is that these tools are much, much more powerful than just letting us connect while, while you're in your home office and I'm in mine. They're a way to connect distributed workforces, right? Across, across states, across countries, even across buildings within the same campus, right? There was a great study, um, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it was from the late 70s uh, by Allen. I think it might have been, might have been, you know what, I'm not going to quote the magazine because I don't remember it, but he was from MIT. And this paper shows a construct named for him called the Allen curve. And what it basically shows um, is that when we are six feet away, we interact like crazy. When we're 60 feet away, I think there was like a four or five fold difference in how often we interact with one another. And when we're 600 feet away, you might as well be on the moon. And so I think there are some people and there are some companies who are looking at future of work as saying, well, now we're all miles and miles apart um, and we can't interact and the water cooler has gone and our teams aren't cohesive. And uh, I don't think that's the case, Ira. I think with the right tools leveraged intelligently and deliberately, we're all now always six feet away. Right? We can all reach out to each other face-to-face -face on a moment's notice in ways that we never could before. Um, you know, I mean, I've put on a little bit of weight not having to walk down the hallway or across the campus, but certainly saved myself and or the government a ton of money not having to fly to California. But the bottom line is, is we're all connected like we've never been connected before. And the onus is on us to make sure we're leveraging it um, because that connection matters, right? It's It's... When I was a postdoc at ARL, our director at the time had a great little meeting with all of the postdocs. And one thing he said has stuck with me ever since. He referred to the nature of the job, and I think this is true for many jobs, 
as being a full contact sport. And what he meant is, is who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a nepotistic sense or a taking advantage of connection sense, but in a relationship sense. Um, you know, no matter how much you love what you do for a living, the joy you're going to take from it is going to be impacted by whether or not and to what degree you love the people you work with and the people you work for as well, right? Going somewhere that's healthy and exciting and has a growth mindset and invests in its people is critical. And embracing these flexibilities is an example of that because it really does let us work how we're most effective. You know, you ever heard someone say, I do all my best thinking at nine o'clock at night while everybody else is done for the day, or I wake up early and I focus over my first two cups of coffee before the meeting starts because that's when I'm most creative. No matter who you're employing, don't you want somebody working when they're thinking their best? And um, the cost of these flexibilities is relatively low in most cases. Um, You know, sure, you may not get Jane Doe or John Smith at 12 o'clock every single Monday. Um, But the flexibility has implications both for the productivity and effectiveness and for morale and cohesion. You know, I think what you're going to see, Ira, is over the next year or two, a lot of movement. Um, You know, we're hearing about things like, uh, what was it, the great resignation and quiet quitting have been in the news like crazy lately. This is people who are who are not content. And, you know, some of that contentedness comes from work life balance. You've got kids, you've got other priorities, you've got family to take care of. But a lot of it, too, is we like to be effective. We like to be productive. Um, Success is rewarding. And enabling people to work where, when, and how they're going to have the most success, the most reward is critical. The trick is going to be to do it in a way where you maintain those all important connections and those water cooler interactions. Mm -hmm. Um, And the secret to that, I really think is intentionality. Uh, Intentionality and uh, what Ariana Huffington referred to in a great article at the beginning of the pandemic as hybrid skills, Mm. Um, resilience, high frequency communication, creativity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to have to go out of your way to make sure these things work. But if you do, the sky's the limit and we haven't found it yet. Uh, and to anyone out there that says this doesn't work, um, I counter that you can't open a new lock with an old key. So stop trying to turn that old key um, and, and think about what we can get from this, but also think about what we need to hang on to as we go through it. I think those are absolutely critical. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Moving, um, Greg, from future of work uh, now to sort of just well, the future, let's say the future of learning in this case, but it could be a future of other things. And once again, coming to this uh, theme that you, you pointed about, sort of the hybrid world that we're in and, and obviously your uh, passion for human potential now. Um, as you know, about a little over a year ago, I had both um, Dr. Uh, Nate Bridges and Gaurav Sharma from the Neural Interfaces Group at the Air Force Research Labs on, and they were talking about this really cool iNeurals program, which integrate some of some of the things, some of the themes in terms of the transcranial magnetic stimulation and so forth you're talking about. And in this particular case, you know, can we teach uh, a pilot to fly this new mm-hmm. fighter or the space shuttle or a rocket ship, whatever it may be, in six months as opposed to one year? Uh, can you teach me calculus in three months as opposed to 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> and so forth. Well, um, where are we going, Greg? I mean, obviously putting on your the Star Trek uh, uh, <laughs> hat for a minute and, and looking out, obviously, you know, the future is bright. You know, folks like you are on the cutting edge with the, not just the clinical work, but with interfacing with these new technologies. Where potentially are we headed? And obviously you can bring up ARL examples if you want, if you're allowed to, fine, no. But where potentially is all this going? You know, can I graduate? Well, not me, but, you know, can my daughter graduate in the eighth grade and do her <laughs> PhD? But where are we headed with it all in terms of the yeah. future? Yeah. So just speculating here, because who truly knows the future? Sure. But um, there's been enough great work. I, I'm not familiar with iNeurals, but I'm going to go look it up when we're done here. Uh, I'm okay. familiar with a lot of similar programs for sure. And, and the premise is basically if you intervene in some way, electricity, magnetism, sound, even pharmaceuticals, behavioral for that matter, uh, we can make the brain do what it does better, faster, right? Or if you're going for the opposite, slower or less so, right? If you're talking right. about something like 
um, post-traumatic stress and behavioral responses learned that we may want to dampen. You can, you can take that approach as well. But I think at the end of the day, if you go out and you look at the neurostimulation literature, there's so much there that I feel confident saying, I, I, I think there's really something to this. I really do believe it. I think the ability to intervene with the brain can speed up, slow down, and impact uh, learning, behavior, cognition, memory, you name it. But we don't really understand how yet. Um, and that's been one of the challenges the field has faced, because for every paper out there that finds a, a great effect, there's another one that doesn't. Yeah. There have been a couple of um, big meta reviews over the past few years as well, or I guess I'm dating myself, it's probably more than just the past few years at this point, where they looked at dozens and dozens and dozens of studies together and pooled the effects and nothing came out of it. Um, and there are big arguments out there saying this stuff doesn't work. Uh, but I believe it does. I just don't think we know enough yet. And so if you're asking me what I think or fantasize the future holds in this field, I think we hit some hypothetical point where enough work has been done, where we truly understand the mechanisms. We know enough about the brain circuitry and connections and dynamics that we can put electricity or magnetism or whatever the case may be, wherever we want for whatever desired effect we want. Maybe this is a thousand years from now or a hundred years from now or who, who knows, but it makes me think of, um, gosh, I hope I got the book right, but Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Sure, Blade Runner, sure. Blade Runner yeah. right? There's Blade a scene Runner. in it, assuming I've got the book right, where one of the characters goes and turns a dial on the wall and suddenly feels happy. It was almost like a, a narcotic effect yep. with a, a button on the wall. And, um, you know, if you think about everything we do as humans, everything we feel, all the behavior we do day in and day out, a lot of it is very adaptive and positive and you know, helps us get through our day and our life, but a lot of it's maladaptive as well. And so if we could safely, reliably, and, and in a well-understood manner, tap in to intervene for pathology or to positively affect the good stuff, um, that'd be incredible. You know, I mean, we're facing an opioid epidemic right now and fentanyl on the streets and um, you know, those are all people who are dealing with horrible isolation or, or intractable addiction. And think about the ability to, to help with those types of things. And I'm not talking about, you know, the type of depression because somebody passed away, right? That's an adaptive behavior. You know, we're, we're sad for a reason. Or if there's a lion chasing you, you're scared for a reason, right? But clinical depression and post-traumatic stress where our brains have, have come up with these maladaptive responses that then cause us difficulty and, and prevent us from doing the things that make us happy and make us successful. Um, to me, some far future science fiction state of this neurostimulation stuff is the end of that, where for, for clinical depression, you can just intervene and fix it, where for chronic pain, make it go away, post-traumatic stress, forget it. Um, but again, this all depends on a really in-depth understanding of how these technologies truly work. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't know when we'll get there or even if we'll get there, but we're trying hard to get there. <laughs> you, you, you just uh, maybe think of one other, one other thing, right? Uh, when you, when you brought up the opioid uh, epidemic, um, I'd love to get your thought, your thoughts on this matter, just because um, <laughs> of your background, but uh, we've done, a few shows actually um, over the last couple of years on sort of this resurgence in um, psychedelic pharmacotherapeutics <laughs> for a variety of, uh, and, and one being PTSD. Um, I, I would just love to get your take on what you think about this resurgence of research in this area, which was normally sort of DEA scheduled number one and couldn't touch these compounds. And potentially whether some of the, the non-pharmacotherapeutic tools that you're developing potentially could be used or substituted uh, in their place. Yeah, no, great question. I've read some of that work. I actually know a couple of the people who are doing some of that work and it's fascinating stuff, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I don't think anybody's surprised that aspirin makes a headache go away, but to imagine that something like psilocybin could, right. could help with the, I have no idea how it works, but I'm utterly fascinated by it. Um, you know, one thing's for sure in, in how we perform and behave and feel, um, context is king, right? There are stories out there like crazy of an addict taking a certain amount of a drug 
over and over and over at home, but then suddenly in some different context, they take the same amount of that drug and they overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because of that context. Right. And so if I were to just, you know, I hate to use the word guess as a scientist, but I don't think this quite merits being a hypothesis. So if I were just to guess, I, I would wonder if, if the psilocybin or the other schedule one substance you're referring to maybe impart some contextual change in the brain um, that results in, in the neurotransmitters or the electrical signaling that, that is associated with depression, with trauma, with whatever they're, they're pursuing. Um, maybe that shifts, maybe that changes. I don't know, but it's, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, you know, and also in the cases of um, less closely regulated pharmaceuticals, right? Like think about even cannabinoids for epilepsy and uh, it's fascinating. Sure. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, even nicotine, right? Like nicotine is going to kill you. No one's going to argue that. There's sure. no, as far as I know, there's no safe way to get nicotine into your body. But from the neck up, there nicotine's great. <laughs> there are studies where they're they're using nicotine patches to stave yeah. off early onset Alzheimer's. Um, nicotine is neuroprotective. It's a cognitive enhancer, yeah. but it comes with a cost, just sure. like all of these other things. So. While I'm incredibly excited and incredibly curious uh, about what's going on with psilocybin and trauma and depression, um, the question is, is what are the costs of it, right? Are they helping people more than they're hurting people? And the literature so far seems to suggest yes. Um, So I hope policymakers are watching and listening. And, uh, you know, I I like to think that if it turns out to really be uh, a big magic intervention for some people, and we come to some policy route for them to get what they need to be cured. But yeah, it's a tough one. Um, those substances do a lot of harm too. So I'm curious to see where it goes. Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, it's, it's just, um, it's such a fascinating portfolio. You have Greg, and again, you know, once again, you doing an episode on my research labs because everyone think, oh, we're going to be talking about warfare and weapons and stuff, but just the, the dual use, the amount of crossover oh, yeah. work that uh, folks like you were doing, it's, it's just, it's so very impressive. And that's really, you know, what I strive to highlight uh, on the show and, and, and everything that's going on in sort of these corners that uh, we might not think of, but really very impressive. Um, while I have you, great. Any, anything else that I missed that you wanted to talk about that, Maybe I didn't read about, but please let me give you the floor uh, to to do the wrap up if there, if there are things or uh, at the same time um, places that you know you may be speaking, giving talks, conferences that we may see you at, meet you at uh, one day soon. Anything else hot for twenty twenty two? Please. Yeah. Uh, so you just you just said something that's been in the back of my head now for a long time. So you know I went to graduate school in Vermont, lived out in the woods. Um, And I mentioned earlier on that if you told me a decade ago, I'd be working for the government or even the army, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, Part of it is, is, you know, yes, we are the United States Army. A fair amount of our budget, a fair amount of our research and technology looks at making the army more effective, right? And um, when I was younger, that's how I thought of the army labs and the service labs is they're, they're military, military, military. And you know, to some extent, that's absolutely true. We have a mission, and it's a mission to make sure that the United States Army is the most prepared army in the world, mm-hmm. so that, that we can deter conflict and dominate it if it does happen. But so much of what we do is dual use, right? Yeah. You know, we work on helmets that, that are collaborations with the NFL, and we worked on the COVID response, mm-hmm. and historically, computers and the internet. Um, and so much of what we do technically is generalizable, is potentially dual use and vice versa. You know, we work a lot with folks out there in industry who are generating things with with one application in mind and we're able to help them and identify others. And so for me, um, you know, working for the government, working for the army is about working with really, really, really smart people with really hard problems. There was another story in the news this morning, uh, or maybe it was on DevCom's Facebook about how you know, Tesla and Google and other companies are solving this self-driving car challenge, right? But Tesla and Google and other companies have nice flat, clear asphalt with lines on the sides that computer vision can say stay between those. 
And, and in the army's case, there's holes in the ground and chasms to cross and incoming fire and all these other considerations that make these such hard scientific questions. And so um, even though that dual use is out there, good science is good science. And our command, our lab are some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And it's an honor to get to do this kind of work, not just for a profit, not just for generating enough data for the next grant, but to genuinely making the world a better place, whether it's a military specific function to get out there in the world and promote democracy, or whether it's advancing COVID-19 vaccines at home. Um, it's not what I expected. And it has been a truly phenomenal experience. Um, and I look forward to it every single day, doing the, the right science for the right reasons. Excellent. Excellent. One last thing you just want to see you, you, you stimulated <laughs> one more thought. How do, how do small um, startup companies, uh, startup innovators ultimately work with you guys? Is there a process? Uh, oh yeah. You know, if I, if I come up with the cool way to impact dreams uh, or something, whatever, <laughs> how, do, how, how does that whole process work? You can say a couple yeah, of absolutely. Like so we've got a whole bunch of mechanisms in place at the end of the day. We have um, sitters, which are small business programs, sure. uh, sitters, and then those acronyms are SBIR, STTR yep. um, for technology transfer. But we also have a whole bunch of mechanisms that let us get out there into the ecosystem. Okay. So um, X-Tech Search, have you ever heard of X-Tech Search? No. Okay, that's a phenomenal program. That's where um, it, it's very Googleable. You can find it sure. out there, listeners. Um, it's a competition to basically teach us about the technologies and the, the capabilities that small companies are striving to solve and putting them within an army context. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a multi-phased uh, uh, period of performance where we're really pushing to identify what those dual-use technologies are that we could potentially bring in and employ for uh, warfighter challenges, for military challenges. Um, but at the end of the day, good science is good science, I said earlier, and good tech is good tech. So if there are companies out there that are developing this kind of stuff, there are lots of ways to get in touch with us. Look this up on LinkedIn on the web and send an email, right? We'll point you to the right resources. Because um, if the tech is worth pursuing, then ultimately we probably want to pursue it. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate that, Greg. Yeah, sure. Fascinating uh, story, fascinating portfolio. Um, really, really wonderful. I'm mean, wishing you the best with, with all these programs, Greg, uh, moving forward, especially with the human optimization work and uh, future of work uh, that you're going to be involved in um, uh, for, again, for everybody uh, that's going to be listening to this particular episode uh, across the various podcast networks or watching uh, on our YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Greg Lieberman, neuroscientist, lead of the Optimizing Human Systems Performance, U.S. Army DEFCOM, Army Research Laboratories. Um, Greg, I, I want to again thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come uh, talk to us and educate us for a little while here. Uh, obviously, thank you for everything you've been doing and continue to do there and your service to our country through it. Uh, and, and as we say on our show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow uh, through what you're doing. Really very, very inspiring story. Well, you're welcome, Myra, and thank you. Not only am I honored to be here, but I'm thrilled that this podcast exists and that you're doing what you're doing and uh, keep helping those of us trying to create a better tomorrow for all of us to Wonderful. get it done. Uh, I think you probably fall into that category yourself. Thanks so much. Good seeing you, Greg. You too, Ira.